A couple weeks ago, my wife and I were on vacation to beautiful Colorado Springs. And we've been there a couple times, and I, I was surprised that we had never visited what is the most popular tourist destination in Colorado Springs, perhaps in all of Colorado, and that is the famous Garden of the Gods. How many, how many of you have been to the Garden of the Gods? All right, yeah, I mean, you know, it's the quickest trip to find paradise from Western Kansas, you know what I mean? And, and there's a picture of it if you haven't been there. I mean, I'm telling you, many of you know this because you've been there, it does not do it justice. Am I right or am I right? Wow. Um, something about those beautiful red mountain rock formations. And you can kind of tell by the picture, but they are so tall. And as you walk, what I loved about this, of course, you'll appreciate this if you've had kids. Um, it's kind of hard to enjoy the outdoors when you've got an infant in a stroller. You know what I mean? God didn't necessarily pave his beautiful creation with stroller walkways. But at Garden of the Gods, they have concrete walkways all the way through one of the paths. And so as you're walking there, you're pushing your stroller with your baby and you look up and you just feel so small. But it's not just mountains and rocks. We saw a guy trying to like bare knuckle climb. That was pretty scary. I mean, I thought I was gonna witness someone dying, you know? And, uh, and of course, you know, those guys, they've got mangled fingers and toes. Like God did not make you to climb the rocks like a monkey. I'm sorry, you can't convince me of that. But it's not just the mountains, it's the beautiful trees in the greenery. You can kind of see it in the picture. One of my favorite parts is that there are several parts in the park that the mountains and the trees just break and there's this beautiful, picturesque meadow at different places. And I mean, we went there on a, on a partly cloudy day. It had been raining a lot. And so just the green was alive and lush. And when you walk through that park, you're not, you become quite aware of why the, some of the very first people to explore the area in 1859 looked around and one explorer is, quoting as, is quoted as saying this, this is a place fit for the gods. That's how it got its name. I don't know of a better starting point for us to understand the original garden of God without maybe thinking about this garden of the gods. In Genesis chapter two, where we'll continue our study through the book of Genesis this morning, it's a passage about the garden of God. Some of which of us know it as the garden of Eden. And Genesis two is interesting. I, I don't have a lot of time to address this this morning. When you think of the creation account, most of us think of Genesis 1, right? But as you could tell by verse number 4 in Genesis 2, actually, in some ways, this is also a creation account. It's very different. And I think in some ways, it's like Moses switches to a different camera angle and plays back God's creation from a different viewpoint. In Genesis chapter one, he's focusing on God's universal power as a creator. And in Genesis chapter number two, I think he's more focusing on God's relational uh, connection with mankind. And he focuses on this garden where he and man would meet together. 
It all starts off in verse number four with God's covenant name. It's the first time it's used in scripture in Genesis 2 for the Lord God, which gives us a clue that Genesis 2 is about more than just the sequence of God's creation. Genesis 2 is trying to tell us something about God's relationship with us. And as we study Genesis 2 this morning, we're going to visit the original garden of God. And God is going to describe it in a way that gives us a picture of its beauty and its splendor. And you might ask this morning, why do we need to know about the original garden of God? Because it ain't here anymore. Well, let me tell you this morning, when you and I get an idea of the place God had prepared for us, you and I are going to get a better picture of the place God does prepare for us in the future. And more than that, I hope that you'll see in this passage the relationship God wants with every single one of you. The relationship he wants with you because the way that he had a relationship with Adam is the same way he wants to relate to you this morning. And as we get to the end of the passage, you'll see the way that you can have that relationship with God even though it's been broken by your sin. Our passage this morning divides into two sections. In verses four through 15, we're going to see God's perfect paradise described to us. And then the passage will end in verses 16 through 17 with man's pivotal choice. And with this two these two sections, we will get an idea of the way God wants to meet with us as his people, but also a sense of what we must do if we want to enjoy the perfect paradise God has prepared for us. Let's pick up our reading in Genesis 2, verse number four. These are the generations of the heavens and of the earth when they were created in the day that the Lord God made the earth and the heavens. And every plant of the field before it was in the earth and every herb of the field before it grew. For the Lord God had not caused it to rain upon the earth. And there was not a man to till the ground. But there went up a mist from the earth and watered the whole face of the ground. And the Lord God formed man of the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life and man became a living soul. And the Lord God planted a garden eastward in Eden. And there he put the man whom he had formed. And out of the ground made the Lord God to grow every tree that is pleasant to the sight and good for food. The tree of life also in the midst of the garden. And the tree of knowledge of good and evil. And a river went out of Eden to water the garden. And from thence it was parted and became into four heads. The first, the name of the first is Pison. That is it which compasseth the whole land of Havilah where there is gold and the gold of that land is good. There is Bedellium and the onyx stone and the name of the second river is Gihon. The same is that, is it that compasseth the whole land of Ethiopia. And the name of the third river is Hedekel. And that is that which goeth toward the east of Assyria and the fourth river is Euphrates. And the Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to dress it and keep it 
And the Lord commanded the man, saying, Of every tree of the garden thou mayest freely eat, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil thou shalt not eat of it. For in the day that thou eatest thereof, thou shalt surely die. Die. This is the word of the Lord. I want you to see in verses four through 15, God's perfect paradise. And I want to just show you, just march through how God describes this perfect paradise for us. I want you to see, first of all, in verses five through seven, that in this paradise, God gives life to everything he made. God gives life to everything he made. Verse number five starts off by pointing out a problem. There's a problem. There's these plants, but there's no water and no person to till the ground. And so God is shown as the solution to that problem. God provides water, not by the rain. And we'll, we know what rain is pointing forward to, right? Noah and his account. But at that time, there wasn't a rain. The water came up from the ground, the mist out of the ground. And God is giving life to his plants. But God also gives life, not just to his plants, but he gives life to man. And verses six through seven describes God's creation of man intimately. He forms him. It's a, it's a building word. God is building with his hands. And that's interesting to us because normally we're used to seeing God create with his words. But there's something unique about his relationship with man because he doesn't speak and let man be created from afar. He intimately is involved in shaping man with his hands out of the dust of the ground. And that's why Job reflects on, in the verse that we hear at funerals a lot, that out of the dust of the ground he was made, and it's to the dust of the ground that he shall return. But God doesn't just form man with his hands. He breathes into his nostrils the breath of life. Now, I don't know about you. I've always been a little bit fearful after taking my first CPR class that I would actually have to do CPR. It's not the chest compressions that scare me. It's the awkwardness of doing the mouth-to-mouth thing. You know what I mean? Because that's just, that's a little too close and personal for me. Anyone else with me on that? Like, I'll save somebody's life. I'll do it. You know what I mean? But don't, I don't want to have that opportunity. I would just rather not. Right, Dr. Zagara? But as you understand the intimacy of that breathing into the nostrils of breath of life, you understand how intimate this connection between God and his creation is. God breathing life into his creation. God gives life to all that he has made. And I think that there's a lot that we could point out from this passage that we don't have time to get into in some of these details. But I think the idea here is that, that God is pointing out that in his sanctuary, all of life comes from him. It's why Paul would reflect later on in Acts 17 that in him we live and move and have our being. That's why a newer song that has been written the last couple of years, I love the lyrics, it says, it's your breath in our lungs. And so we pour out our praise to you. All of life comes from God. But in this paradise, Moses also shows us that man's every need is met. Everything man needs is given to him by God and more. If, if you missed it, man, God is just putting his generosity on display. 
in verses nine through 14. I love verse number nine, and it, it ought to stick out to you if you understand the temptation story in Genesis three. Look at the generosity here. And out of the ground made the Lord God to grow every tree that is pleasant to the sight and good for food. Every tree. You know, Satan would say, no, 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 God, God didn't want you to have any of the trees, but verse number nine shows us God wanted him to have all of them except for one. And here's what's interesting to me. Not only were these trees nutritious, they were good for food, but God cares about aesthetics too. These trees were not just utilitarian. They weren't just there for nutrition. They were pleasant to the eyes. God, in his generosity, gives man not just what he needs for food, but a beautiful garden sanctuary that declares his glory and shows off his handiwork. And then in verses 10 through 14, I don't know about you. When I first read this in my study, I'm like, I don't know why this is here. Why am I getting the name of four rivers, many of which I can't pronounce? Literally this morning, I'm using my Bible app to figure out how to pronounce them. Like, what is the river thing about? Why do I care about these four rivers, two of which Bible scholars don't even know where they were? You know, the, the Hedekel, that's the Tigris River, and then there's the Euphrates. We know where those are, but this Pihon and Gion, what is that? I want you to notice that the if you just set the river thing aside for a moment, that the idea there is that these rivers were coming out of where? They were coming out of Eden, out of God's presence. And God's presence was giving life, not just to the garden, which was in Eden, his presence was, was filling the earth and giving nutrition and riches to all of the earth. So much so, it wasn't in the garden that these things could be said, but outside the garden, he points out in verse number um, 11, that one of these river heads goes and there's gold everywhere. And the gold of that land, verse number 12, is good. And then there's bdellium, which is this, uh, this rich resource kind of made from uh, like a resin. And then there's onyx stone, rich jewels that are offered. And then there's all these other places that are named that are rich and fertile. Here's the idea. What, what's the deal with the rivers? I think Moses, in describing the beauty of the places outside of Eden that are kind of getting the leftover water, is getting us to think, if those places are so rich, how much more rich is the garden that Adam and Eve were in? If the gold in that land was good, how much better were the resources and the jewels and the gold in the sanctuary and in the garden of God? Are you with me on that? And then I think the second point he's making is once again, that it would be from the presence of God that all of the world would be watered. It reminds me of Revelation 22, I think it's verse one or two, where I think the new Jerusalem is patterned in just the same way when it says that a pure river of water of life, clear as crystal, proceeding out of the throne of God and of the Lamb. God is giving life. He's meeting man's every need. The idea here is that God is not, is not holding out on Adam and Eve. No, he's richly providing for them. He's not just giving them what they need. He's giving them everything they could ever want. You'd be a fool to think God was holding back on you. 
And boy, doesn't that contrast with Genesis 3. When Eve and the serpent get into a conversation about how restrictive God is. Christian, this morning, can I remind you that God is not holding out on you. God is generous in God's life and in God's offer to you. He gives you everything you could ever need and even want. Not just in this life, but man, in the life to come. A riches offered for God's people in his sanctuary. Every need is met. And I think that, that then there's this extra thought here that kind of weaves throughout the passage is that in this paradise, man works and worships in the presence of God. Look at verse number four. It gives us the first clue when it starts using a relational term for God, the Lord God. That, that's a covenant term. The, the word Lord, if you see that in your Bible, all caps, it, it's the way that God would remind his people of the covenant or the contract, the relationship, the marriage, if you will, they were in. And so Moses, as he's writing this, he's saying, listen, God is not just in relationship with the nation of Israel. He was in a personal covenant relationship with Adam way back in Genesis 2. And then look at verse number 8. You know, we often refer to the Garden of Eden. We think Eden and the Garden are one thing, but Eden is this bigger area, and the Garden is a subsection of Eden. Verse number eight shows us that, that the Lord planted a garden eastward in Eden. But look at the last part. By his grace, God puts man in his sanctuary. Look at the last part. And there he put the man whom he had formed. Meaning, man was not in the sanctuary with God if it was not for God's action of putting him there. And then verse 15 repeats the same idea. Look at verse 15. And the Lord God took the man and he put him into the Garden of Eden. And then you might look over this, but these two words, dress and keep, they're Hebrew words that mean work and keep, work and guard, work and manage. And the only other place that these words are used is speaking of the Levites serving in the tabernacle. What's the idea here? The idea here is that Adam enjoyed a personal relationship with God in the presence of God. The same way that the priests would enter into the presence of God in the tabernacle, Adam enjoyed that 24-7. In fact, chapter three, I think verse number eight, tells us that it wasn't uncommon for Adam and the Lord God to just take a stroll together. Man, there's few things more relational than a good walk with somebody, isn't there? I love it when our family gets to go on a good walk after dinner, when it's not blazing hot and scorching the skin off your bones. And that's what Adam had. He had this relationship with God. He, he, he was like a Levi, like a priest king, serving in the presence of God. He was managing God's sanctuary and God's temple. His work was his worship, and his worship was his, was his work. And he had this intimate connection with God in which he could be in his presence and serve him night and day. He had a connection with God that you and I can only imagine. And I think the idea here is that God wants a relationship with his created people. You know, this is the idea out here that God just made the world and he's separate from it. And I'll be honest, sometimes life makes us feel that way, doesn't it? Where's God in this? 
Where's God in this scenario? Where's God in this danger? Where's God in these troubles? But friend, can I just remind you this morning that anytime you feel separated from God, when you feel like God doesn't want a relationship with you, that is not the product of what God originated. That is not how God created the world to function. When you feel separate from God, that is the product of sin and the curse. The setup God had from the beginning was he wanted an intimate, personal relationship with mankind. And God is doing everything in your life to draw you close to him, to restore this picture we have of Adam serving in the presence of God. That's what God wants for you. That's what God wants for you. And as we read this picture of the perfect paradise, this perfect paradise of Eden shows us the perfect land God has prepared for us. Now remember, when we read the Bible, we don't just say, what does this mean for me? We ask first, what did it mean for them? the original readers of scripture. And I want you to understand that when Moses is writing about this, he's not just writing about Eden, so all the people of Israel will be like, oh man, I wish we had that. You ever had a friend who's just show off about the stuff they experience that you don't get to experience? That's not what Moses is doing. In fact, in verse number five, the word earth there is the same word that's translated all throughout the Pentateuch as the land, the land, the land. And when an Israelite heard that word, the land, you know what they were thinking about? Canaan. You know what Moses is saying? He's saying, listen, this is how God wanted to relate to Adam, but friend, there's another land waiting for you in Canaan, a land where I'm gonna give you life and not death and servitude, a land where I'm gonna meet all of your needs. There are houses you didn't build, vineyards you didn't plant, resources that are abundant and flowing. It's a land flowing with milk and honey. This is gonna be a land where you can serve me forever because Pharaoh wouldn't let you out to serve me. Moses is saying, friend, listen, there's a land that God wants you to enter. He's trying to give the people of Israel a hunger and a thirst for that land, that sanctuary that God was bringing them to. But friend, as a Christian, we don't look, for, we don't look back on the land of Eden or on the land of Canaan. We get to look forward to the land God has prepared for us. Isn't that what Jesus said in John 14, I believe? I go and prepare a place for you. In my father's house are many mansions. And if it were not so, I would have told you. And boy, just read Revelation 21 and 22 this afternoon, would you? Just read it this afternoon and read about the place that God has prepared for you. And here's the reality. We look forward to a land that is far more glorious than the land of Canaan. And when you read Revelation 22, you'll find out that the author, John, is very intentional saying that the new Jerusalem, the new heavens, the new earth are very intentionally designed to be exactly like the garden was. We talked about the river flowing from the throne of God that matched the rivers that we just read about in verses 10 through 14. And the tree of life, which is like not talked about for almost all of scripture, just shows up again in Revelation 22. And here's this tree of life that in Adam's day was to give them and sustain their life. But in Revelation 22, this tree of life was for the healing of the nations. That that land, friend, is a, is a land in which God will heal every sickness and every disease. Thought about our missionary, Dave Disney, who's going through his cancer situation. He had good news and bad news this last week. 
some tumors that weren't growing and one tumor that's growing a centimeter a month. And I don't know about you, but when I think of situations like that, I don't know if God will reach out his hand and heal him now, but I know one day in that land, God will heal him then. And if God's able to heal him then, he can certainly heal him now if he wants to. But Christian, we look ultimately to that land, that land that Jesus said to the thief on the cross, today you'll be with me where? In paradise. Because more important than the riches of the land and the river and the trees is that in that land, my friend, you and I will see God face to face. Look at Revelation 22.4. Speaking of the new heavens, he says, and they shall see his face and his name shall be in their foreheads personal presence with God. That is the land God has prepared for his people. So as Moses is writing this, and as God is speaking to us, he says, here's a picture of the land I've prepared for you. Friend, if you don't know me this morning, God is saying, I want to have a relationship with you. If you're hurting this morning, I want to give you a land in which all of your hurts are healed. I want to give you life and breathe into you new life when you are dead in sins. But here's the question we have to ask. That sounds great, God. That ain't what is my life right now. Last time I checked, it's called Garden City, but it ain't no Garden of Eden. Somebody give me a witness to that. I have a relationship with God. I don't think it's like what Adam had walking in the cool of the garden. How do we enter into the sanctuary of God. How do, we, how do we enjoy the paradise God has prepared for us? That's where verses 16 through 17 come, and they tell us of man's pivotal choice. Man's pivotal choice. You know these verses well if you've been in church a while. But God prepares this land for Adam, and he just gives him one command. Notice God starts off pointing out all the goodness of what he's given them. He says, it says, And the Lord God commanded the man, verse 16, saying, Of every tree of the garden thou mayest freely eat. Underline that word, freely eat. But of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil thou shalt not eat of it. For in the day that thou eatest thereof, God's not messing around, Thou shalt surely die. There was one tree that was off limits. And it was this tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Now some read this and they ask, I, I think somewhat fairly to, to a human degree, what, what's up with God here? Why would God put a tree in a garden that man wasn't allowed to touch? Well, and I just want to stop for a minute and just remind you that when we start thinking on that track, your words are coming dangerously close to the words of the serpent in Genesis 3. Friend, can we just zoom out and think about, before we get to verse 17, that God is no stingy God. 
God is no manipulative God. God is not there to set a trap. God has been crazy generous. I mean, Adam would have been in the garden in the first place if it wasn't for the grace of God. He planted the garden and then he took man and put him in it. And he gives him this land flowing with riches and gold and onyx and bdellium. And he gives him all of these trees of which he could freely eat and he just says, you can't eat this one. Now what's up with that? Is it that there was some magical power in this fruit that if Adam took a bite, it would actually make him like God? No. Here's what the tree represents. The tangible act of eating the fruit was a decision once and for all about who Adam saw as his authority. You gotta get that. What God is saying is he's saying, Adam, there's a choice before you of whether or not the same one who's created you and enriched you is going to be your authority, is going to be the person you trust for wisdom, or you're gonna decide to set up a different person as your authority. And that's really what Adam's choices were. Number one, he could choose to follow God, to be God's disciple, to live under the authority of God as his father and as his king to trust that God knew best, even if it didn't make sense to Adam, or option number two, was Adam could decide for himself what was best. Adam could say, God, your words are too restrictive. I think I need what you said I don't. I think that I would much rather be in charge of my own life and my own destiny. And so we see this dynamic in verses 16, through 17, that God is very clear. If you want to enjoy my paradise, you need to submit to my authority. And I think that's what Moses is arguing to us today. If you want to enter into God's paradise, you must submit to God's perfect authority. God will not allow you into his perfect paradise if you simultaneously reject his perfect authority. In fact, far from entering the paradise, he says, if you reject my authority, verse number 17, notice the firmness of this promise. You will surely, surely die. God's perfect paradise can only be enjoyed by submitting to God's perfect authority. You know, it reminds me of what my mom would often say to me. My house, my rules, right? You don't like my rules, find your own house. One of my brothers said, I'll do that just that. Age 18 said, I'm gonna have my own house where I have my own rules, right? But yet we turn around at God and we think God is restricted because in his house, we need to live and abide by his rules and submit to his authority. And remember, again, Moses is writing to a generation that is hungering and desiring a land that God had prepared for them. And it's no wonder, after understanding what Moses is saying here, that we hear these same ideas echoed by Moses in the book of Deuteronomy. When he says basically this, if you want to enjoy God's paradise, you need to submit to God's authority. He says, ye shall walk in all the ways which the Lord your God hath commanded you, that ye may live, and that it may be well with you, and that ye may prolong your days in the land which ye shall possess. You know what he says? If you don't want to keep this land, go ahead, rebel against your creator. 
Because you don't get to have the land unless you submit to God's authority. Joshua famously says, what a verse many of us learn in Sunday school, choose you this day whom ye will serve. Why did he say that? Because he said, you're not going to retain this land unless you serve the God of this land. And friend, if you're here this morning and you want to enjoy the perfect paradise God has prepared for you in heaven, you must submit to God's authority. And submission to God's authority means submission to his son, Jesus Christ. I love the words of the thief on the cross in Luke 23. He, he prays a strange prayer. I don't know about you, when I've led people to salvation at the altar, I've never led them in this one. But it was good enough to save him. Here's his prayer. Lord, remember me when you come into your kingdom. You know what? That's a strange prayer. What, what is he saying there? He's saying, remember me, Lord. He's saying that I can't get into your kingdom unless you remember me and you get me there. Isn't that the gospel, friend? That your only way to enter into God's kingdom is through the son, Jesus Christ. Hey, a man dying on a cross who looked over to his left and saw the son, Jesus, the same one whom he had mocked, said, you know what, this is the only way I can get into God's kingdom. Hey, listen, God saves anybody, even those that mock him the hour before. Praise God for that. He says, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And then Jesus says to him, what? Today, today, you will be with me in paradise. How did the thief on the cross enter the perfect paradise God had prepared for him? He entered by submitting to the perfect authority of God's son, Jesus Christ. Friend, if you want to have a personal relationship with God, if you want it to be said of you that that day you will see his face and his name will be on your forehead, if you want to enjoy the healing presence of God as one day his river of life and the tree of life heals all of the nations, if you want to enjoy the riches of that land, God has prepared for you. You say, well, why would God do that? I don't know, just because he's good. That's why. You want that? You must submit to the perfect authority of his son, Jesus Christ. You must accept that if not for the sacrifice of Jesus Christ, you will not enter that paradise. It doesn't matter how good you are. It doesn't matter how all the good things you do are. It doesn't matter how smart you are. You will not enter without the presence of Jesus Christ getting you there. But these words in verses 16 through 17 remind me as a Christian, and they should remind you as well, that there is a seriousness to submitting to God's authority. Feel the weight of what Jesus said, or sorry, what God said in verse 17. And the day you eat of it, thou shalt surely die. Friend, if you don't accept Jesus, that's your alternative. Certain death. And literally in the Hebrew, it says, and in dying you shall die. 
Meaning that God had in mind not just a physical death, but a separation from him, a double death. And we see that at the end of chapter number three. Christian, you may, have, you may have submitted to the authority of Jesus in a final sense through accepting him as your savior, but there needs to be a daily submission to his authority. You know what's interesting to me? The tree of life, if I'm, if I'm understanding right, it only shows up in scripture three places. Here in Genesis 2, Revelation 22, which I've talked about, and in Revelation 2, verse 7, where God is writing to Christians, please listen well, because this might be the difference between life and death for you. To Christians, Jesus Christ says this. He that hath an ear, let him hear what the Spirit saith unto the churches. To him that overcometh, will I give to eat of the tree of life, which is in the midst of the paradise of God. He didn't say to him that prayed a prayer, did he? Now that's not saying that you, you earn God's presence, but what it is saying is that there is a seriousness to your submission to God's authority because there is not a picture in the Bible of a Christian who does not submit to God's authority in the long picture of their life. And so as we hear these words this morning, this morning, we hear the seriousness of as a Christian, your life being marked by submission to God's perfect authority. We all struggle with it. We're all imperfect at it. But would to God that our lives as Christians would be marked by a distinctive submission to the authority of Jesus Christ. That we wouldn't forget his generosity and his provision. That we would remember that God is our source of wisdom and not some book elsewhere and not some of our own thoughts and our own feelings. Well, yeah, scripture says that, but actually I really think this. That we would believe that we need to submit to God's authority and remember that he's given us everything we need in Christ instead of us saying, well, I want more money because what I have is not enough. I want more liberty because serving God is too restrictive. I want more and more and more. Maybe God's holding out on me by saying, don't do this or do this. I think for a lot of Christians, we're okay with 90% of what the book says, but man, there's that 10%, isn't there? We really struggle with. One or two things that we're like, I'm not sure I wanna submit to that. Let me just be, let me just, let me just bite of that tree real quick. Friend, there's a seriousness in submission to God's authority. Can I remind you this morning, and I'll be about done, that the pattern in Genesis 2 is that when you submit to God's perfect authority, you have everything to gain. But when you deny him, you have everything to lose. Next time you're faced with a choice of whether or not you'll obey the commands of God, remember, you have everything to gain by obeying him and everything to lose by disobeying him. Well, it's hard to assemble with God's people regularly. You have everything to gain. And you sure will miss out on a lot. I don't care what church is the coolest church on planet Earth or whatever. You need to 
be under the commands of God and submit to them each and every day of your life. You cannot enjoy the blessings of God while simultaneously rejecting his authority. This morning, there's so much to think about and pray about, and as Shelby comes, I want you to think and pray about these things. I want you to remember that God has been generous and good to you.